It's good to see everyone. It's been a little while since I've been here. I took uh, some weeks off, and uh, so I'm back here. And I was in Costa Rica where I didn't have access to Facebook or the news, and, and uh, it was glorious. It was amazing. And it all came crashing down when I came back. And I opened up, and like Facebook was like, ah, like what's happening? And, and if you know me, like I'm like this basset hound looking for conversations to talk about the goodness of God. If I have one message to preach, it's God is good. And I'm just like drawn to every debate on Facebook, every idiot who's got a Twitter account. I'm like just drawn like a, a bug into a zapper to like tell people like, no, God is really good. So I come back, and so I'm kind of recalibrating with what's going on in the world and getting adjusted in life. And so I see this photo on my news feed. It's attached to one of these prominent theologians, really one of the prominent theologians of our time. His name is John Piper. I see thousands and thousands of shares. And so there's a photo here. I don't know if we have it, but it's of a family, the Powell's family. And you might even be familiar with this photo. And this family here has committed themselves to serving in Japan as missionaries, selling everything. Given their lives for Japan, and they have a blog called uh, Joy of Japan. And so they were driving to Nebraska for missionary training, the whole family. And a semi-truck comes in and hits them in the back of the vehicle, the van. And the van hits the other cars in front of it. This is like traveling down the freeway. The cars come around and they they slam the sides and the van combusts. Every single one of them died. We're looking at two adults, 29 years old, a three-year-old son, a 22-month-old girl, and a two-month-old little boy. Now this story got a ton of attention, not just because it's an awful tragedy, but because of the sermon and the eulogy that John Piper gave and presided over. And I went to it and it had been, by the time I saw it, it had been shared 66,000 times. Reading the comments, tens of thousands of comments, unanimously, this is true. This is how we respond to the tragedies in our life. And I began to read the transcript of the funeral message. I'm going to read parts of it for you. It says, O Lord, God of might and mercy, you have driven the arrows of your quiver into the breasts of your people, your beloved. You have filled our throats with bitterness and gall. You have made our teeth grind on gravel and laid us with wounds and ashes of our dreams. You have taken away our sleep and replaced our gladness with groaning. You have covered us with the shadows of those we love and we have reached out in vain to touch their bodies. You have spared us, us who have lived out our days through no merit of our own, who would happily have finished our course and taken their place. But you have not spared their children or the valiant young lovers and your most loyal servants. O Lord, to you we cry, remember our affliction, remember the bitter wormwood and the gall. You have not made us drink this cup in vain. We know your heart, O God. For there is nothing in the world more bright, more blazing, more terrible, more beautiful, more bloody, more hopeful than the revelation of your heart and the depth and triumph of your son Jesus. Now I have immense respect for John Piper. 
I've heard him preach in person. I traveled to South Africa, actually, and I heard him live. I read his books. I, he's a brilliant scholar, but I have to stand before you and say, this is wrong. But this is the prevailing theology of our time. That God's sovereignty controls everything. That every single detail of life is rendered to certainty. The belief that God is responsible for, for everything that happens on earth and that nothing happens outside his doing. This is the prevailing theology of many people of our culture is this thing. And remember, from this message, people are saying, amen, yes, Jesus, this is it. And here I'm like reading this, I'm like, I'm just like dying inside. Like how on earth did we develop a theology like this? And I believe that this blend of theology is the most damaging to God's character and it utterly impugns his goodness. So tonight I want to give you a better response. And humbly, I submit to you that the easiest sermon you can say and preach is that everything that happens is because of God. That's the easiest sermon you can give. I think it's actually hard to stare face into tragedy and lives lost and still proclaim that God is good. And that's what I want to do for you tonight. Are you ready? The prevailing belief, as I said, that everyone that is in vain of this theology believes that God ordains and renders every single detail of certainty, trials, tribulations, and tragedies. And I'm here to say clearly to you that God is not behind any of these. How do we know? It's because trials, tribulations, and tragedies come against your relationship with God in attempts to make you fall away from him. If you have a smartphone tonight, you might want to pull it out because I'm going to give you a couple things you want to remember. Trials, tribulations, and tragedies come against your relationship with God in attempts to make you fall away from him. That's the truth. Trials, tribulations, have you ever noticed that they never come with good intentions for you? They never think wonderful things of you when they come to you. Trials and tribulations never have good intentions for you or your well-being. And they have a purpose. And the purpose is to separate you from God. But you might be saying, wait a minute. I know the Bible verse. It's Romans 8. For I am neither convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor dead, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that passage, right? She's like, wait, how do trials and tribulations and tragedies try to come against our relationship with God? Yes, we are promised that trials or death or any other thing will separate us from the love of God. But that does not mean that they cannot separate God from your love. Trials, tribulations, and tragedies don't have the power to stop God's love from you, but they have the power to stop your love from God. I'll let that sink in for a second. Trials, tribulations, and tragedies, they won't succeed on God's end, but they actually might succeed on your end. How do we know that God's not behind us? Because the trials and tribulations come to separate you from loving God. They don't come to separate God from loving you. They separate you from loving God. You need to know that trials, tribulations have the power to make you reject God. Two times Jesus warns in trials and tribulations that some will fall away. Matthew 13, 21, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Matthew 29, 
24.9, then they will deliver, deliver you into tribulation and will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Trials, tribulations, Jesus warns of falling away. Now, I'm no expert in the logic of God, but why would God be the author and the sender of something that has the power to make you fall away from him? If God is sending and ordaining and authoring trials, tragedies, and tribulations, why would he do that when he is the very one trying to draw you near him? Now, some believe we put all sorts of dressing on trials and tribulations that God wants to refine your faith. That God really, like, wants to make you stronger, and so he's sending you circumstances. The most terrifying prayer, this is my, like, early theology, is that if you want more patience, just ask God for a circumstance to give you more patience. It's like, that sounds like a curse. (laughs) I never, like, I don't want a circumstance to give me more patience at all. No way, no thank you. But when we suggest this, what we really are doing is saying something awful about the heart of God. God is not using trials to refine you. He is at work in you to help you overcome them. God is not using trials to refine you. He's actually working in you to overcome them. The add-on to that Romans 8 passage says, in all these things, remember we just read off those trials, tribulations, and tragedies, that we overwhelmingly conquer them through Christ who loves us. It would be strange for God to be the instigator of trials when it is God who is empowering you to fight and overcome them. Are you with me? Some of you look scared. God is not going to empower you to overcome what he is delivering to you. It makes no sense. He would be empowering you to fight against himself if that was true. Our instruction in Romans 8 is to fight against tribulations. We are instructed to conquer them, not to surrender to them. Our instructions is to stand up against our battles, not lay down Ephesians 6. Our instructions for suffering is to pray against it, not welcome it, James 5. These would all be acts of rebellion and disobedience if God was sending them to you. So don't blame God. Blame the world. We Christians, this is hilarious, we act as like we never knew why the world has problems. And Jesus is like, I put it in John 16, man. Says this is that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you've never read that passage, shame on you. (laughs) Don't blame God, blame the world. He's saying, take heart, the world is going to give you trouble, not me. The world is. He was clear on the matter. And don't you remember that Jesus halted storms? He didn't send them. Now, just because there's trouble in the world, it doesn't mean that God is authoring or sending them. It makes no sense for God to send you trials, tribulations, and tragedies. Why? It's because, listen here, trials, tribulations, and tragedies come against your spiritual fruit. Trials, tribulations, and tragedies come against your spiritual fruit. Not only do trials, tribulations, and tragedies have physical, emotional, relational loss, they also bring spiritual loss as well. 
trials, tribulations, and tragedies are an attack on your spiritual fruit of your life. See, the, the Spirit produces fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit, remember? Say it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, right? That is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Isn't it interesting that trials, tribulations, and tragedies produce the exact opposite fruit? The exact opposite fruit of what the Spirit produces, trials produce. Have you ever known someone who's had a tragic loss in their family? Maybe someone who's lost tragically a child. Now, amongst the tragedy of losing the child, they lose the joy and the love that that child brings to the family. In tragedy, we see deep anguish. We see deep despair. We see anxiety. Tragedy can yield all sorts of amazing responses that aren't godly, such as anger, meanness, disbelief, depression. Sadly, it's not uncommon to see people fall into addiction and substance abuse to help numb the pain. And beyond that, their faith at best is shaken and at worst shipwrecked. All of us in this room know someone who's had faced a tragedy and said, forget you, God. That the tragedy they did not have a theology for was a single thing that broke their faith in God. There's nothing else that challenges your faith more than a tragedy. Did you notice trials, tribulations, tragedies produce the opposite fruit of the Spirit? I'm telling you that they are incongruent with the positive workings of God in your life. They are counterproductive to what God wants to do in you. Why would God send you anything that has such a devastating impact on the fruit he wants to produce in you? He doesn't. It makes no sense. We need to completely reject the lie that God sends you trials in order to teach you something. God gave you the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, Jesus says this. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you. What does it say? All things. Why would God send you a trial, a tragedy, when he gave you the Holy Spirit to teach you? There's not a circumstance in life where that is going to be more qualified to teach you than the Holy Spirit. You don't need cancer. You don't need a disease to learn anything when God himself can tell you and teach you. And that is his desire. It would make no sense for me to desire my little children. You saw them here earlier? Four and two. It makes no sense for me to desire my children to get burned when I can tell them that fire is hot. I wouldn't want to like watch them back and like, oh, son, go play with that fire there and see what happens. But that's what our theology is doing. It's important you know that no trial or tribulation can ever teach you better than the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Nothing. There's not a single thing on earth that can, that's more qualified and more capable of teaching you than the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God does not teach us in all things. He does. He can use a traffic jam to teach you. That doesn't matter. The thing is that you, that you, don't, you, don't, you don't, don't require tragedy to learn. Some people think, well, I needed this for God really to get a hold of me. It's like, what kind of theology do you have? 
We need to know that the best thing that we have to learn and to be taught from the Holy Spirit or is from the Holy Spirit, not from these tragedies. Here's the flat truth. I'm going to get real with you right now. Is that only an unloving father purposely sends trials to his children. Only an unloving father purposefully inflicts pain upon his children. We actually have a term for that, and it's called abuse. That's what we call it. When we have an earthly father that purposely inflicts pain on his children, we call that abuse. It's against our laws. God is not testing you with trials, nor is he ordaining your pain and suffering. But for some reason, this truth is so hard for us to grasp. For whatever reason, it's easier for us to believe that God is sending me these afflictions. And it's just, here it is. We believe things about our Heavenly Father that we would never accept for an earthly father. We write books in theology about a heavenly father that we would put earthly fathers in jail over. We would never tolerate the thing on earth, the things on earth that we accept and believe about God in heaven. Here's an example. My little four-year-old girl, I'm wearing her little Rapunzel sticker right now. Can you imagine if I took her to the park one night? She's playing, and I purposely left her there overnight. All alone. Can you imagine the panic, the fear? Can you imagine the sheer terror, the cold, the sounds, the unknown? Can you imagine the experiences she would have shivering in fear, never knowing if she's going to see me or her family ever again, not knowing why it's going on? And imagine me coming the next morning and stepping out in the park and getting her. And imagine me telling her, that the entire experience was for a purpose. The entire experience was for a reason. Imagine me explaining to her that I want to test her to see if she really would endure and love me. Imagine me telling her that she would be a better daughter because of what I did. Imagine me telling her everything that she experienced should make her stronger. Imagine me convincing her that I'm really a good daddy and good daddies do these things to kids and while it sounds like it's mean, it actually is really loving. Imagine me explaining to her that her whole experience was my will and was for my glory. If I did that, I would be placed in jail and I would never be allowed to see my daughter again alone. Not only that, but my daughter would have a totally warped sense of what a good and loving father is. If she were not traumatized for life, she probably would be, but if she wasn't, she would at least never trust me again with her heart and likely suspect me for causing every other realm of her pain. Doesn't that sound familiar? Now this all sounds crazy, but this is the exact theology that many of our minds have when it comes to God's role in tragic events and trials. If we cannot accept something within our definition of a good and loving earthly father, then we should never accept it in our definition of a good and loving heavenly father. If it doesn't pass that test, it doesn't belong on God. And it tells us that he is supremely better at us in being a good father than we ever could. 
But the standard that we accept for God, we would never tolerate on earth. Bottom line, it makes zero sense for God to send you trials, tribulations, and tragedies because it's against the productive work of him in you. And it's against his nature as a good father. We can't call those things good. We have completely lost the definition of good if we stamp that experience as being a good father. However, there's one person who does indeed give people trials, tribulations, and tragedies. His name is Satan. And these are his workings. So not only don't blame God, but blame the world, but if you can't blame the world, then blame Satan. Now, we have a really hard time with blaming Satan for bad things that happen, for whatever reason. Now, why would we be surprised that Satan authors trials, tribulations, and tragedies? How else is he going to steal, kill, and destroy if he's not materially involved in trials, tragedies? How do you say this trial and tragedy is from God, but the devil steals, kills, and destroys? And I have no idea how to explain that. How does our theology allow us to put the blame of a tragedy upon God and say, yeah, Satan steals, kills, and destroys, but I couldn't give you an example of it. This is a short list. This is not exhaustive. This is just passages I kind of was familiar with. Let me just read a couple things from the Bible that we know about Satan. This is six slides, by the way. Satan is the world's original murder. Satan is a thief, a killer, and destroyer. Satan is the father of lies and has no truth in him. Satan is the ruler of this world and the prince of the air, causing disobedience. Satan inhibits and blocks our plans. Satan sabotages the work of God and soar of evil. Satan seeks to devour and destroy. Satan tempts you. Satan takes advantage of you. Satan puts evil plans into people's heart. Satan inspires you to lie. Satan sets traps to cause condemnation. Satan tricks people to do his will. Satan holds people in bondage. He is a destroyer of the flesh. He strategizes against you at the right time. He enters into people. Satan is in pursuit of people for evil. Satan causes trials and tribulations. Exactly. Satan is an oppressor of people. Satan is a schemer and always looking for an opportunity. I'm not done. Satan is an attempted murder on the baby Jesus. Amen. Satan tried to convince Jesus to commit suicide. Satan thinks he's superior to God. Satan blinds the eyes of those who might receive salvation. Satan is an imposter and a masquerader. Satan prohibits belief in the hearts of those who hear the gospel. And Satan creates a stumbling block to make people fall. That trial and tragedy, do you think it's the divine hand of God? Or do you think there's someone else maybe at work? But for some reason, our theology has placed all the blame upon God when we have no shortage of, of examples. I'm like, I have never gone face-to-face with Satan before. And this is why you've been given the armor of God. You haven't been given the armor, you know, against God. You've been given the armor of God to fight against the enemy. Satan is the one who has promised to come against you. Jesus says the one is going to come against you, but take heart because I am greater in you than the one who comes against you. Why are we so surprised that Satan comes against us? We shouldn't be. Now some want to say, well, they want to sugarcoat trials and tribulations because they have intrinsic value for us. No, there's like some good about it. Are there any positive effects to trials? Sure, 
if you endure successfully. It's a big if. Are there any benefits to trial, tribulations, and tragedies? Sure, if you make it out on the other side. But a lot of people don't. Jesus talks like people fall away. What good is that? Like, what is the positive thing in someone encountering tribulation and falling away? Doesn't seem like that worked out too well, does it? There's only one outcome when you face a trial. Either you defeat it or it defeats you. There's one outcome. Either you defeat it or it defeats you. If you defeat it, you are victorious. And is there fruit that comes from that? Absolutely. But if it defeats you, then Satan is victorious. Satan really is real, and he really wants you to fall away. Consider this. Falling away was Satan's goal for Job, and it's his goal for you. The temptation upon Job was that Job would curse God to his face. Do you remember? That was Satan's goal for Job, and it's Satan's goal for you, is to make you curse God. Trials, tribulations are invitations for us to fall away, lash out, numb out with sin. And Satan will use trials and whatever else he can to inspire you to disobedience just like the temptation of Jesus. Remember? When Jesus was tempted, he was tempted to disobedience. Now, everyone gets knocked down by trials, but when we do, our instructions is to get back up, not lay back down. When you get knocked down, you're instructed to stand back up. A righteous man, Proverbs 24, 16, gets back up again. Falls seven times, but gets back up again. Now, if you believe God is knocking you down, why would you resist? If you really believe that God is authoring your trials, and you believe that in your heart, you get knocked down, why even get back up? How can you get back up if you believe God knocked you down. And this is the story of Job. I don't have time to go into the full story of Job because I so desperately want to. But you need to know that Job got knocked down and stayed down. Job sat back and let Satan steal from him. Did you know that Satan is not acknowledged a single time in the book of Job after he steals from Job? Job never recognized that his loss was from the devil and not from God. But yet Job is our poster child somehow for any time we receive trials and tribulations. That we look and we say, man, Job had it right. But if you read the book, Job foolishly blamed God and justified himself. And instead, instead of spending all his words questioning God, Job should have rebuked the devil like Jesus did. Because Jesus rebukes the devil, the devil flees. It's the one thing that Job didn't do. He didn't know who he was being stolen from or who was stealing from him, and he never rebuked the devil. Maybe it would have been a different story. I don't know. But Jesus should be our role model for trials, not Job. When you face a trial, a tribulation, a tragedy, don't look to Job. Look to Jesus. Because Job said God takes away, but Jesus said Satan takes away. Job blamed God, but Jesus blamed Satan. Job sat down, but Jesus stood up. Job rebuked God, and Jesus rebuked the devil. Don't elevate Job in your tragedy. You want to put Jesus as your authority for how you should respond. And if you don't know, turn to chapter 42 of Job, because Job repented for all the foolish things he said. 
No one knows this. No one knows that at the end, Job is like, oops. But we write songs out of the first chapter. And we think that that was good theology, and he didn't. And so before you quote Job as justification for God's hand in your calamity, you should read the end of the story. We actually see that Job confesses something mind-blowing, is that he only had heard of God but didn't know God. Did you know that? At the end, as Job is repenting, he says, For I never knew you, I only heard of you, but now I see you. Perhaps that's the reason why Job said the silly things he said. That he really didn't have a relationship with God. Maybe had Job had dynamic relationship with God, maybe he wouldn't have made the assumptions about who was to blame for his loss. And so the lesson of Job is this, is that absence of relationship with God creates bad theology. Unfortunately, many Christians still repeat Job's foolish words and believe that God gives and takes away. Are you doing okay? Making sense so far? So what ought to be our response to trials? I know a few of you got a, like a question. So what ought be our response to trials, tribulations, and tragedies? It's a big bummer here, but it's joy. It's joy. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that is our biblical instruction to be joyful in all circumstances, even trials, tribulations, and tragedies. Yet, this instruction is one of the things that the devil uses to get you to believe that your trial and tribulation is from God. Let me show you how tricky this is. We all know that we're supposed to be joyful in our circumstances, our tragedies. Why? Because our minds have been fooled to believe that God is sending it to us and that this is God's will for our life. And if it's God's will for our life, then we need to be happy about it. That is how the enemy has twisted the fact that Satan can steal from you and you say, God took from me. And I need to be joyful in it because if I'm joyful, it surely is because this is what God wants. We don't, we're not joyful because that's what's happening. Again, this participates in the lie that God is the one who's sending your trials. God is for us, not against us. Amen? Amen. God is for us, not against us. If God is sending us trials, then he would be against us. But that's completely wrong. We're not to be joyful in our circumstances because, frankly, the circumstances suck in tragedies. You're not instructed to be joyful about what's happening. You can't be like, oh, my whole family just died. This is so wonderful. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're actually supposed to be joyful in who God is and his goodness. But here's the thing. That is an impossible thing for you to do if you believe God is the one who's doing it. We're to be joyful in God because he's good despite our circumstances. We can say this circumstance stinks. This circumstance is awful. I'm utterly devastated, but I can rejoice because it's not God who's doing it and God is good. And you can have an authentic, joyful response in who God is. You don't have to have a joyful response in your circumstance because remember, the Bible says, be angry but sin not in your anger. Right? Not like, oh, this is awesome. Steal my other stuff. Like, Rejoice in all circumstances because God is good and he's not the one who's stealing from you. Here is the 
amazing truth about this. When you believe I'm supposed to be joyful because God is doing it to me, it is impossible to be authentically joyful if you believe God is the author of your pain. You can say, oh, I'm so joyful. It is impossible for you to be authentically joyful if you believe God is the author of your pain. It's not authentic joy because tragedy is not authentic goodness. Are you catching that? It's not authentic joy because tragedy is not authentic goodness. You're not supposed to lie in your joy. That'd be another sin. That'd be bad news. God's not asking you to fake it. He's actually asking for a right response that is true. It's impossible for you to celebrate your loss, but you can actually be joyful in who he is because he's not causing your loss. But joy has a second function as well. Beyond it being the right response for us in our circumstance, joy is the best defense against trials and tribulations. You're thinking that joy is really the period on the end of my tragic statement. It's, just, it's really the, uh, the ending cap to it. That's the wrong way to think about joy. Joy is actually a defensive tactic. By seeking joy, we actually rob Satan of his prize that he wants from torturing you, which is to steal your joy. Why does Satan send trials, tribulations? Because he wants to steal your joy. When you eliminate his prize, that is called resistance, and he leaves you alone. I'm wondering if this is how the Grinch who stole Christmas theology got started. You know the story, right? The Grinch thought he had it all going, and he finds the very thing he's trying to steal is not available for him to steal anymore. You don't respond with joy because it is God who's doing it to you. You respond with joy because that is what is trying to be taken from you. You don't respond with joy because it is God who's doing it to you. You respond with joy because that is what is being trying, that is what is trying to be taken from you. Consider this. If Satan can steal your joy, he disarms you from your best defense against him. If Satan can steal your joy, he disarms you from your best defense against him. If you're without joy, you are without hope. If you're without hope, you are without faith to resist him. Remember, Satan flees when you resist him. What does that mean? It means Satan's lazy. He doesn't want to put in the hard work. But we have all these Christians that are laying down, making it easy. And that's why it's so important for how you view trials. Is it God or Satan? That's really the operative question tonight. Who is to blame? It's one of those two. And how do you actually resist Satan materially? How do you actually resist Satan if you believe in your heart it is God who's afflicting you? How do you reconcile that? The truth is, Satan will continue to steal from you as long as you believe God is the one who's doing the taking. If you believe God's doing the taking, how do you resist? You roll over like Job. 
And as long as you're rolling over and as long as Satan can steal from you and you're saying God gives and takes away, he's going to steal more from you. Could this, here's a radical idea, could this be the explanation why trials seem to be unrelenting and many for some people? Could it be that our response to what we're going through is disarming us and actually inviting the enemy to come and steal from us even more? When it rains, it pours, right? Could it be that our responses, believing that it's all God's doing, that he's doing this to me, could it be that that is the actual welcome mat, the beacon that is calling Satan to send his vultures to the rest of you? But when we remove the object of what he wants, when we remove the ability to steal our joy, he gets lazy. It's not worth it. Would this explain why Job was stolen from multiple times? I don't know. I just know that Satan wants you hopeless and without joy. And when you get knocked down, Satan wants you to look down and stay down. But Jesus wants you to get back up and keep your eyes on him. Joy is the ingredient to our faith that actually empowers us to resist the devil. Joy is the key ingredient to our faith that empowers us to resist the devil. So when Satan comes to try to steal, kill, and destroy, don't sing the lie of Job that says God gives and takes away. Instead, form a fist of joy that says I authentically rejoice in God because he is the creator. He is the giver, not the taker. And I can celebrate that no matter my loss, it's not coming from the king. That's the response that gets the enemy to flee. That's the kind of joy, that's the kind of response that lets Satan know that he has no business messing with you. I love like action movies. Do you? Like a boxing movie. The guys are there and one guy gets like a big old like punch and like knocks out his teeth and like spits the tooth out. He's like, what else you got? Like (laughs) that should be our response. It's like, I know, I see you. I see what you're doing. I'm not confusing this. I rejoice in his goodness because that is you. I'm not being fooled by it anymore. And this is the only, I'm convinced, this is the only paradigm of joy where you can truly be joyful in every circumstance. I think unless you have this mindset that is God who gives and Satan takes away, joy is not an authentic, genuine response you can have if you believe God is at fault. Now, no one said that choosing joy was easy, but choosing joy is impossible when you believe God is responsible for your pain. Authentic joy celebrates the goodness of God because God really is good. God made us more than conquerors, and he's given us authority over the enemy to crush the Satan under our foot. Authentic joy bolsters our faith and eliminates Satan from having what he wants. When we're victorious and persevering with joy and faith during our trials, we are made stronger for the next trial, should it ever come. Every victory over a trial produces hope, a reassurance that nothing can overcome us because we are the ones who are the victors, and God is indeed for us. And this is the sign of mature believers, someone who has withstood the trials of the world and is yet unshaken in their faith. 
We can trust that God's will is not orchestrating trials and tribulations. We, we can trust that God is actually for you, not against you, and that he's never going to give you more than you can handle. He's given you power and victory to overcome anything that life or Satan gives you, and we better get it right. Amen. Amen. I love you guys.